What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from Appointed Furs, a monthly interview program here on WERU-FM with authors and artists invoking the spirit of Maine. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Rob McCall, nature writer and author of Awanaja Almanac, a syndicated weekly audio and monthly column featured here on WERU-FM and in various publications in Maine and New England. We are discussing the history and craft of observing and writing about natural things. Rob? Hi, Peter. Welcome. Yeah, good to be here, Peter. It's Thank you for inviting me. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Let's well, let's start with your history, uh, which is varied. Uh, when I read your biography, I find you uh, a somewhat itinerant youth. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, the family, uh, the family trade was preaching. Everybody else in my family went right into that. And uh, I, I went right to a seminary after college, but then I said, wait a minute, you know, there's some things calling me, mostly outdoors, that I wanted to do. Uh, so I, by the time I got those things done, I was in my 40s. And then I realized I was getting too old to do some of this stuff. So it was time to become a preacher. So that's, <laughs> so that's what I did here. <laughs> a preacher is something that you become when you're tired of doing everything else? Well, I, you know, it's not as dangerous as tree work or, or, or something like that, which I was doing quite a bit of, uh -huh. orchard work and and uh, and that kind of thing. Because, you know, you have to stand up in front of a bunch of people for an hour a week. Yeah. Uh, but, um, and, and there are certain occupational hazards, as you may know. I mean, anybody who stands up in front of people becomes a target. And uh, you have to be aware of that and be ready for that. Well, you also have to deal with the human condition, which is not uh, necessarily a safe place to go. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing like uh, being a minister to deal with the, the human condition. So that, that's my history in brief. <laughs> but that first uh, connection to, to the land, to nature, um, can you can you recall moments when you be first became aware of that kind of oh, well, yeah. reflection? Yeah, looking back, I mean, I, I think I mentioned on the Almanac a, a week or two ago, well, we used to go camping as a family in the 50s, and we I was raised out west, so we'd go to places like Glacier National Park, set up this cumbersome old tent, you know, with the uh, heavy canvas thing, and, and the uh, Coleman stove that would burst into flames, you know, uh, unexpectedly, yeah. uh, and all of those uh, types of experiences. And, as, as I, I remember camping like that way back when I was just, you know, not a toddler, but, you know, a, a young child and right on through. So, yeah. And my mother uh, was a big fan of the wildflowers. She knew them all and she would tell us what they were. Dad was a fly fisherman. He liked to be outside, although he didn't get as much of that in as he probably should have. Uh, so, yeah, we came by naturally. 
Did you collect things? Uh, let me see. What did I collect? Bugs, oh, yeah. rocks, yeah. arrowheads. Yeah, you know, well, of course, children are natural collectors. So and I can remember the first time we went to the shore up in uh, uh, West Pembroke, you know, just walking away from the shore with your pockets so full that, your, you know, your pants would slide down if you weren't careful. You know, rocks and yeah. shells and all of those things yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. So there's a natural predilection to observe things closely when right. you're a child. You're close to the ground. You're, right. You right. can sit in the pied pool and watch. Right. Can you remember being conscious of that in some way, that it became something that you knew that you you wanted to know more about? Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, in some ways, I think when you're a child, it's the it's the whole it's the whole that you're interested in, and then the particulars as far as identifying and labeling and all that are not quite so important. Yeah. But I do remember when I was I was a school teacher for a few years, right out of school, and looking out the window of my classroom. Here I am teaching junior high kids, and I see a I see a tree with red flowers all over it, and I didn't know what it was. And I said, my gosh, I should know that. I'm a teacher, you know. I love the outdoors. Well, so I, I looked it up. I must have been 26, 27 years old, and it was a, a, a red maple, Acer rubrum. And, and I thought, now, Rob, why didn't you know that ahead of time? <laughs> if you're going to teach people, you should, you should know. Uh, so then at that point in time, I think I decided that I didn't, I, that it, it just made me uncomfortable when I saw a plant that I couldn't identify. So then I started turning to the guidebooks. Back then it was, you know, Peterson's Guide to the Wildflowers and that kind of thing. Nowadays, you know, oh gosh, you can go online and you can get anything you need. But, but at that point in time, it was just basically going through the guidebooks, the plants, for the birds, for the trees, all those things. Working in the trees, working in the classroom, how did that get you to seminary? Well, I went to seminary right out of college, yeah, and I'm glad I did because mm -hmm. the time came when, uh, you know, I, I had to turn to that, mm -hmm. and, I, and it's been a wonderful career for me. Tell me about that just a little bit. Well, <clears throat> I was working in a commercial apple orchard. I was a foreman uh, in charge of the spray program and the picking and, and, and all that uh, kind of thing. And, and um, there were Jamaican laborers on the job uh, who came up seasonally to pick the apples. I felt that, that the owner of the orchard was being too harsh with them. He, he was a gentleman farmer. He didn't have to do this. Mm -hmm. He would try to squeeze a few more bushels of apples out of the, these guys who were already working very hard. Uh, so what happened in, uh, at the end was he felt that I was siding too much with uh, the pickers, and he fired me right at the end of apple season. There was no place I could go to get orchard work at that time of the year. Mm -hmm. And I was living in, we, Becky and the uh, kids and I were living in a company house. So we were essentially jobless and homeless with Christmas right around the corner. And fortunately, I'd been doing some preaching. And I went to one of the little churches uh, uh, that I'd been preaching at, and they were looking for somebody. So, you know, it was a fairly smooth transition. And where was your first parish? Uh, it was in Clinton, Massachusetts, the German Evangelical Congregational Church. Wow, great little church! I still remember those people so fondly. What a what a just in the last 
two minutes of description, what a what a foundation for life and the, mm. the interactions with Jamaicans or German evangelicals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. quite quite remarkable. I've been very lucky. How yeah. how did the almanac idea come? Well, way way back when we were living in West Concord, Massachusetts, and I, I and I wrote a little almanac for the local paper there, the Concord Journal, I, and I called it the Miskatequid Almanac because that was the that was the name of the uh, of the river that went through uh, there, and it was very much like the Awanaja Almanac is. Well, then when we got to Blue Hill, it was not the river; it was the mountain. The mountain was the significant. Uh, natural feature uh, of the area. And I started climbing it seriously in uh, 1990. And I realized that, and I'll probably say more about this, but but climbing that mountain generated a certain kind of energy uh, that I had to get out. So I would, I would start writing about it. I would journal or I would, you know, do something like that. So, um, when I had something I wanted to print or publish, uh, I went to the local paper and uh, Nat Barrows, and uh, he was interested. So he says, what are you going to call it? So I said, well, now that's a good question. I want to name it after the mountain. So I was reading Fanny Hardy Eckstorm, who was a, who was a Maine anthropologist. She taught at the university. Remarkable person. Remarkable person. And she has a book called, or had, uh, she's not around anymore, but uh, Indian place names of the main coast. And she had a name, Awanajo, which means small misty mountain in, in uh, probably in Penobscot, uh, referring to Blue Hill Mountain. So I thought, well, that has a nice ring to it, Awanajo Almanac, you know, and it, and it, it was a, a native original name for that mountain. So that's that's where the name came from. So Nat Barrows is the publisher of our local weekly that's right. newspaper yeah. in, in Hancock County. That's right. um, it's one of the last remaining yeah. uh, of those kinds of publications. It's right. part of the charm of living here. We, right. We're surrounded by anachronisms. Yeah, yeah, we are, and we love it. <laughs> we don't want to go any farther forward too fast. Um, and then, so how did it become more institutionalized? Did he 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 basically allowed you to speak to write weekly? To uh, yeah, well, so I was I was also uh, doing the audio uh, for uh, WERU, mm-hmm. but I wrote out a script. Mm-hmm. So I would I would go, go into the radio station every Friday morning and and, and they'd record the almanac, and then I'd take the written script and I'd send it over to Nat Barrows, and, and he would uh, publish it if he liked it. And uh, he's I've been, been liking it quite a bit. So, yeah. Well, uh, they're collected, by the way, as uh, the Small Misty Mountain, published by yeah. Pushcart Press. Yeah, that's right. And also uh, distributed by Norton. And Great Speckled Bird, your most recent collection. Well, actually, the it. most recent one is Some Glad Morning, which came out uh, last fall, just was it just before the pandemic? So yeah, and a lot of that is almanacs. Well, it's it's a genre. Nature writing is a, is a genre which has sort of snuck up on us in a way. It's been yeah. been here forever. Yeah, and it's been something that's particular to Maine. Uh, I mean, it's all over the country, but but there is a there are exemplars uh, of this in our history. Who are those people? Well, I can I, I can think of a lot of them. Of course, Thoreau. Um, and, and I'll probably have something to read from him. 
Uh, one, of my, one of my favorites is one that nobody seems to have heard of, and that's uh, William J. Long, hmm. who, who uh, wrote around the turn of the century. And he was a naturalist. He was also a clergyman. He was a naturalist, and he spent a lot of time in the Maine woods. And his thing was mostly animals. And he's written books like The Spirit of the Wild, Can Animals Talk, and this kind of thing. And he was at the center of a big controversy where uh, Teddy Roosevelt accused him of making all these stories up because he has amazing tales about what animals had done, which he had observed. Uh, and Roosevelt said, I've never seen animals do anything like that. And Long's retort to him was, well, if you'd leave your gun at home, maybe you would see them do some of those things. You know? <laughs> uh, but I mean, I also think of Fanny Hardy X. Storm and Sarah Orne Jewett. Right. Uh, you know, more contemporary. You know, we've got, I've got uh, a little something to read from, if we get to it, from Gary Lawless, the poet down there at, uh, from Belfast. Susan Shetterly, uh, I have a, a, some poems from Pequas, who's a Penobscot Indian uh, woman poet who wrote some beautiful stuff. And then, you know, um, Kim Ridley, uh, my old friend Fred Grilensky, who writes for the Quaddy Tides up there in Eastport. I think uh, Paul Doiron, uh, who uh, used to be the editor of, uh, of uh, Down East, and now he writes these uh, you know, sort of natural mystery books about Maine, which I can't wait for the next one to come out, you know, that right. kind of thing. Are there characteristics to the genre? Uh, in in terms of all nature writing or well, Maine yeah, nature Yeah, I mean, voice, voice uh, uh, structure. I think what I would say, now I'm not an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination, and I can only talk from where I'm coming from. But I think, you know, the fundamental part is direct experience of the natural world. In, in other words, you have to be out there. You have to experience it. And it's that energy that, for me, it's the energy I get from experiencing the natural world, which generates the writing. I couldn't do it without that. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, I, it's not a good analogy, but you think of an electric car you got to go plug it in every now and then and charge the battery up. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been that way for me. For, uh, climbing the mountain was that way for me for many years. I, uh, you know, I had an old friend, Ross Greenlaw, who, who loved to go all over and have adventures here, there, and everywhere. And I say, Ross, I'm, I'm happy just climbing the mountain. I don't need to go anywhere else. And, and he said, well, he said, some people climb a thousand mountains once and some climb one mountain a thousand times. And I said, all right, by God. So, so I climbed the mountain a thousand times between 1990 and 2000. And every time it, you know, it generated something. Uh, you climbed it alone. Yeah, for the most part and year round. And the interesting thing about that to me is the quality of silence mm -hmm. uh, in a world that's so full of noise. Oh, yeah. That um, that it's it's a place that you can go and you can just mute all of that noise, which also allows you at least the opportunity to mute all that uh, anxiety yeah. uh, and associated uh, turmoil that we all face in one way or another, whether it's yeah. logistics or health or, yeah. or whatever it may be. So there's this therapeutic aspect to it, which I always think is is embodied in the voice. And when yeah. I read books by by, by Susan Shutterly or others. 
like that, you realize that it's a quiet voice. It's not a loud voice. Right. Uh, and it has a certain pace to it, which is uh, evocative of the experience itself. Uh, right along those lines, I've got a little piece here from uh, Piquas that I'd like to read. In terms of direct experience and evocative, you know, direct observation, being in it, you know, this is a little poem which needs no introduction. She writes, smooth as stones, life underwater, placid as a river without wind, clear as sky on a blue day, silken as hair washed in rainwater, warm and sleek as tanned skin, ribbons shining, wet bodies glistening, iridescent as a raven's feather, sparkling, reflections of a shining path in humid weather, iridescent gold as a hummingbird's feathers, a single raindrop on a frozen bush, an insect's wing, and the colors of a dragonfly make a rainbow. Wow, perfect. Yeah, so it's, it, 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 you uh, feel the energy. Oh, totally. The energy, uh, and it, it, there's, a, there, there's a methodology hidden there, right, which is the sort of the, con the contrast. It's a perfect example of micro-observation and macro-understanding. Right. So each right. one of those things starts with something small, a, a frozen drop of water. Right. But then there's the whole panoply of the frozen forest. Oh, right. So right. It, you, it, 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 each one of those things is a tiny little metaphor, right. which stands for something so much greater. Exactly. And that poem is a perfect example of it, right. really. And, and, and so that's why, for example, the mountain stands for the world or, or even for the universe. You know, It's, it's uh, what they call synecdoche, where the, this little piece represents the whole or, or fractal pattern where where every individual part uh, you know is the same as the as the whole as the whole thing so now yeah. and 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 i think that you know that our observation of nature you know as individuals uh has that same quality it's there's a universality to it even if it's just in one place well that closeness of observation which is key to understanding the, the natural experience, the natural encounter, is also exactly what is required when understanding the, a problem or a, a, a confrontation with a friend or a member of the family. You have to look, you have to listen, and you have to be quiet. And those things seem to be the kind of instruction that are hidden in this kind of writing in the methodologies. Yeah, if you can learn one thing from the other yeah. and apply them universally, then there's a kind of, yeah. of, of outcome that is instructional and harmonious and synergistic and yeah. all the things that we uh, attribute to nature as an abstraction. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm speaking with Rob McCall about how we engage with the environment around us and how we express our observations and feelings in words and actions. When it comes to observation, for me, I can think of at least two ways that that works. One way is when I, you know, when I set out to see something or find something. Like for example, there's a there's a um, big patch of Rhodora up on the south of the summit of Blue Hill Mountain, and at certain times of the year, like when it's in bloom, 
I have to make sure to go there and 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 just sit there and look at it, you know. Um, and and so that's always there. So I'm seeking something. Mm-hmm. But then there are also times when I'd be up there when 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 I would realize that something was seeking me. For example, one time I was walking along the path, uh, getting ready to go around and right up to the summit there. And and this may sound odd, but this rock sticking up out of the moss, like a like a um, it looked like a little mountain, it sort of hailed me and made me stop. You know, I said stop and look at me. It didn't say it in, in so many words, but that was what I heard. And I stopped and I looked at that thing and I realized I'd walked by that rock a hundred times or five hundred times and and never really looked at it. But this time it wasn't going to let me get away with that. (laughs) So it stopped me and said, look at me. And I did. And I've never forgotten it. That was probably 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Well, it's another methodology, in fact, because it's discovery and surprise. That's the other part of it. You you suddenly see something that you never saw before. It speaks to you, which is fundamentally surprising. Uh, And that happens over and over and over in the genre. Yeah. And I think it's also possible that you'll see something you've seen many times before, and it'll it'll be like the first time. Um, You know, it's it's, it's kind of a, a truism that every day looks like the other, but every day is... You know, it's kind of original unto itself. There are no two days exactly alike. And then the same would be true when you're going outside to a familiar place that you're accustomed to going to. Like when I would go up on the mountain, every time I went, it was a little bit different. The path is pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. But the seasons change a little bit and things change from year to year. Um, Trees fall down. You know, smaller trees grow up. The path moves a little bit because something got in the way, you know. Right. And, and so every day is a, is a little bit different that way. So, yeah. I have a sense of uh, sort of a dichotomy in the world, the idea of pro and re. Pro being forward and re being back, yeah. progress, regress. Mm-hmm. I'm a pro guy. I'm always looking forward. Thing. But there's something to be said about regress, when it's not necessarily going backwards, but it's reducing. It's it's the reduction of things to their simplest elements that is also inherent in the in what is happening. Yeah, yeah. When you mention reduction, I think of something like erosion. You know, like for example, uh, uh, Blue Hill Mountain is uh, is a gigantic rock. It's a monadnock, actually, technically, um, and and it's it was probably much larger at one time. You know, but the ice and the weather and so many things have changed. In fact, if you get up there on on the top, uh, you you can and get lined up right. And if the sun's at the right angle, you can see the striations running from northwest to southeast that the glacier left on top of that, right in that solid stone that the glacier left when it was pushing um, south, and and it's kind of striking. You don't see them on a normal day, but if the angle of the sun is a certain way, you, wow. you can see them. So, so I, I think a little bit of reduction, uh, getting down to the simplicity, the simplest 
part of it. The cosmic erosion. The cosmic erosion. <laughs> I, there was a place, we had a house in Nova Scotia, and offshore there was this rock called Hobson's Nose. In our lifetime there, Hobson's Nose, by virtue of sea level rise and erosion, storms coming in uh, from the, the, the Atlantic, disappeared. And I kept saying to myself, alas, poor Hobson, his mark, <laughs> his mark is forever. gone forever. Nobody will remember. Nobody Hobson will ever anywhere. remember Hobson's nose. Well, that's true. You know, that's one of the things about when you, we try to name these things, you know, that uh, language changes, one race or culture comes and another one and then goes and then another one comes in. Yeah. Well, we reduce things also to these simple, straightforward statements uh, of wisdom, homilies, and aphorisms, uh, of which you are the master, by the way. <laughs> well, you are one of the greatest collectors of homilies and aphorisms I've ever known in my entire life. Well, I, I like to find those quotes that I put around and frame the almanac with those, and I've got all kinds of collections of quotes that people have given me. But nowadays with the uh, internet, it's so much easier. But for years, I, I'd, I'd be frantically leafing through these uh, anthologies of, of, of quotes on different subjects and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, plus, sometimes uh, I'll come up with something from the Bible because I know the Bible pretty well mm -hmm. and, and uh, find that that's just as appropriate as anything else I can, I, I can find to put in there. So you have in this process a, a kind of interesting dichotomy of direct learning and indirect teaching. You've, nature has taught you, you then by, by association teach others. Uh, at the same time, you're learning indirectly uh, and you're teaching directly by, by essentially putting it into words and sharing it with others. Yeah, I think probably one of the motivating factors for me in writing the almanac and the collections is is trying to communicate uh, that feeling that I was struggling to describe a little bit earlier about the the power that that comes from you know that direct observation that feeling a part of nature um, and and the the energy that 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 comes from it but it, even more specifically than that there's there is a there's a feeling of love uh, or, or, or empathy for nature, capital N, the whole creation that comes from it, too. Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, William J. Long's comment to Teddy Roosevelt, if you'd leave your gun at home, you might see some of these things. And a lot of us go out, and I did, too, for many years, uh, go out with our gun in hand, and, and all we can see is, is meat or a target, you know, or something like that. Whereas if you just go out and let it come to you, there's a, this thing called still hunting, you know, where you go out and you just sit. Mm. You don't move. And if you stay there for 15 minutes, you know, a chipmunk might come by. If you stay there for uh, an hour, something bigger might come by. If you stay there for a day, you know, no telling what will come by. <laughs> Do you have some examples of lessons that are specific to me? Well, for me, at least, I mean, I think of Maine as being one of the states of the United States that has that has um, mythic power. I would add Texas and Alaska, but but and and for me, it's a, oh yeah, it's associated with 
certain aspects, so almost mythic aspects of the main experience, and that animals, you know, the moose, uh, um, uh, the whales, uh, the loons, these things have a mythic power that grabs us uh, very deeply. And the offshore islands and the whole feel of them, you know, uh, the mountains, not that they're very big mountains, because if you've been out west very much, you realize Maine's mountains are not that significant. But in comparison with the, you know, the rest of the state, they, they, they are significant. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there has to be that sort of mythic uh, quality to it to make it, to give it that power to generate uh, new ideas, new feelings, new, new solutions to problems, you know, that, that we have. So. Has Maine, therefore, been a place of um, ingenuity and, in, and invention? Is there, out of this mythic power, what emerges? Um, One of the characteristics of Maine that I've noticed, which seems to be on the increase, is what we loosely call environmental impulses and energies. Uh, You know, well, you say, well, what does environmental mean? Well, what is the environment? Well, the environment is everything. It's everything around us in every direction as far as, as, you know, as as we can see. So I think what what it does is it, it raises awareness. It's less consumed by by this, the, the individual, and it's more an understanding or a comprehension or a noticing of the entire environment of nature. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be one of the characteristics of me. Does that translate into values? Well, that's a good question. Huh? I think it does. I mean, in me, it does. I think that, well, it's hard to know which comes first. You know, if you have, quote, environmental values, you probably like to go camping. You like to be outdoors. You like to go out and maybe climb mountains or or go paddling or or whatever. Uh, So which comes first? You know, I don't know, but uh, they probably probably go hand in hand. So whether one generates the other, I, I, I don't think I would venture well, we're back to indirect, indirect teaching, direct learning, yeah. the paradox. Yeah. But it it strikes me that as we're young and we are experiencing these things, then we intellectualize them, and they become values in our minds. They become things that are that are essential to preservation, not just of ourselves, but to our families, and we teach it to our families and share it with our families right. or to our communities. That's uh, what my family did with me. Exactly, drag me, have me sleep overnight and huge tent with everybody else in the family yeah, yeah. listen to the crickets and the, you know I think if we could find one organizing factor one basic what what's the word law I guess of nature it is you reap what you sow and and that turns out to be very much like the golden rule which is at the heart of so much of organized religion. You know, you reap what you sow. I mean, that's something we learn from being outside, you know. Right. It's as simple as that. And and uh, without going into too much of this, I mean, Jesus uh, drew very heavily on uh, agricultural and natural metaphors mm-hmm. to describe what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a pope. Yeah. The Pope of today, who is uh, is a ardent and committed environmentalist. Yeah. 
Uh, and in fact, when you look for uh, the support of sort of environmental uh, protections, you can find it built into almost every doctrine within every organized religion, yeah. that there is this kind of identification with nature and reverence for and love and respect uh, and, and, and commitment to its preservation. Yeah. Yeah. And that spirit is alive today. I'm not so sure how well it is. Right. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it also points out, I think just about every major religion points out the risks and the dangers of being focused too much on uh, acquiring things, you right. know. Mammon. And, yeah, mammon. Right. Yeah. We so, live in an age of mammon. Uh, kind of. And it looks like it, doesn't right, it? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Now, I have a little piece here, if I could read a teeny bit more from uh, uh, Piquas about this is called natural law. And it kind of fits in with with what we've been talking about. I won't read the whole thing, but it's it's good. Wings thundering down, low to the ground, pounding the earth beat rhythm. Oasis oasis mighty feet that's bare mighty feet boom across the country's span in the medicine way deer hooves rattle in the spirit world Nolke's hooves Nolke's deer flee silently to protection Tolbay pushes the might of tons of water Tolbay's Indian Island his heart beats strong under ice and mud, as a native heart is hidden beneath a societal world. Especially that last line. Would you read it again? Sure. Wings thundering down low to the ground, pounding the earth beat rhythm. Oasis, mighty feet boom across the country span in the medicine way. Deer hooves rattle in the spirit world. Nolke's hooves flee silently to protection. Tolbay pushes the might of tons of water. His heart beats strong under ice and mud as a native heart is hidden beneath a societal world. A societal world. Isn't yeah. That interesting. Yeah. Be that, that would be like the worldly values. The like, societal world is civilization. Yeah. Or, or you know, maybe a greed or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. competition or mm-hmm. who knows. What about, uh, do you sense a, um, not only the history of, but the continuity and the sort of revalidation of pantheism, sort of worship of nature? Uh, that's a good question. Um I don't know if you've seen Reza Aslan's book, God. He, he he wrote Zealot, which was a great description of the life of Jesus from from somebody who, who comes from, a, I think he, he comes from a Muslim background, but he was also a Christian as a, as a, as a child or as a young man. Um, and and he, he talks about his lifelong quest for the deity, you know, for God. And he, he, I won't tell you exactly what conclusions he comes to, but he keeps coming closer and closer to pantheism. And I can remember my mother saying, and, and she was, she was uh, what we would have called in those days sort of Unitarian with a, with a small U. 
Um, um, in other words, she didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. Um, but but um, she she described herself as panentheist, meaning that God was in everything, and that that makes sense to me because it fits very closely to a lot of traditional indigenous spirituality. You know, people who been working on religion a lot longer than than we have. You know, and and uh, so I would I would say yeah yes probably there is. You know, we talk about nature being sacred, you know. We talk about nature being holy. Mm-hmm. Or is nothing holy anymore mm-hmm. when a, a forest is cut down for a strip mall or something? Mm-hmm. You know, is nothing sacred mm-hmm. anymore? So so yeah, I, I, I think there's a there's a shift in focus in the you know, generally over towards nature being more holy than some uh, you know, God, whom we can hardly. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I like about that is that it eliminates a lot of problems with the classical God, who was over and above, separate from the creation, mm-hmm. and manufactured everything, kind of like a, you know, like like a factory. Or the William Paley, the theologian, early nineteenth century theologian, talks about the watchmaker God. Who, who manufactures everything? If we, he uses the example of we're walking along in a field of grass, and we see a watch lying there. I'm going to myself, why isn't he looking at the grass? But anyway, he sees a watch lying there. He says, we have to assume that somebody designed and built it. Likewise, when we see his creation spread in front of us, we have to assume that somebody designed it and built it. Well, we don't. You know, it might be. It might be something else. It might not be. So if we eliminate the supernatural and say everything is nature, that gets rid of a lot of the problems with the traditional Western concept of a, of a high and mighty God separate from the creation. Right. Sort of the difference between the hunter and the gatherer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or the, uh, the the maker and the consumer. There's a, I mean, it's the same thing, a question of, if the sacred is everywhere, then why would we not honor it everywhere and 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 preserve it and conserve it and sustain it everywhere? But in fact, we don't. Right. And is that is that evil? You are listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU Community Radio 89.9 on your dial and WERU.org. Well, it raises a lot of interesting questions. For example human beings are part of nature. So where does, but we, we still are, have potential to destroy nature. So where does that come from, right? Mm-hmm. You know, are we part of sacred nature? Or are we are we over and against it? Like this God that we, you know, that we imagine in Western tradition, mm-hmm. who's over against creation and can destroy it, you know, mm-hmm. like the flood, mm-hmm. you know, or the apocalypse or the pandemic or the pandemic right yeah so if everything is sacred we still have to deal with the problem of suffering where does it come from mm-hmm. is that part of the whole thing or, mm-hmm. yeah yeah welcome back to conversations from the pointed furs i'm speaking with rob mccall about how we engage with the environment around us and how we express our observations and feelings in words and actions so I've got a little piece on that too. If you, 
I'm ready. Yeah. Um, from uh, Gary Lawless, the uh, poet from Belfast. Uh, let me see now. This is just my favorite one of his. He's written a lot of poetry. And uh, this is from uh, Kara Buddhism. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. It's actually about, um, he, he was in Newfoundland, but it applies just as well to Maine. Every stump is sacred. Every stump a saint. Every silted river a church to which the pilgrim salmon return. Every breath of wind a love song. We worship in wetlands, bow to the fern, the rock, the holy salamander, the blood of sweet water, the body of moss. The soil is dreaming of trees. The trees are dreaming of wind. The wind is dreaming of clouds. The clouds are dreaming of water. The water returns to the earth. Without trees, the soil washes away. The wind blows over barren ground, and the dreams of the world are broken. There's uh, the dreams of the world are broken is a kind of a statement of alienation of which we know a great deal these days. And you wonder why or if or how or when the redeeming qualities of nature will essentially permit us to heal. I, I think one of the terrifying things is that my and, and our generation, we're, we're, we're getting an existential understanding that we can damage this system. Irrevocably. Yeah, possibly, possibly. And I think that's terrifying on, on some level. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, how do we deal with that? Well, we can deny it or, or we can cry and be immobilized or, or, or we can keep trying to uh, do something about it, you know, mm -hmm. which you, you're, you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. I think in, in my way, I'm try, trying to do oh, too. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, that, it's the idea of, of, of nature's therapy um, or as a healing better word, I don't really like the therapy word, but it, 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 and that's what I think many, many people get from the experience of nature in Maine. Uh, we are so fortunate to have so much of the natural world still available to us yes. uh, on land and sea. Yes. Uh, and uh, you're right, that's what makes it attractive. But I've always, always wondered about people who want to come and develop things. And the minute they get there, they they want to destroy them, and I, I, I don't. I, I certainly hope that doesn't happen here, yeah. um, because it could. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're talking about the sacredness of nature. We're talking about, you know, in some ways, the sacredness of where we are. And I, I don't can't imagine there are too many people listening to this uh, interview who don't have a feeling for that. The thing, the thing about. Um, the sacred is that it, it 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 isn't all Bambi, it isn't all flowers and songbirds. It, it it is also it's also terrifying. I've got a little piece here from um, uh, Henry David Thoreau, who you know it's stretching a little bit to say he was a Maine writer, but he did come to Maine a lot and he did write about uh, about Maine. Talking about the you know sort of the terrifying aspect of 
the sacred. Uh, this is a little bit that he writes, and maybe a, a, a lot of people are probably familiar with this. We're coming down Katahdin on, on a great big boulder field, looking out, he says, it was vast, titanic, and such as man never inhabits. Some part of the beholder, even some vital part, seems to escape through the loose grating of his ribs as he ascends. He is more lone than you can imagine. There is less of substantial thought and fair understanding in him than in the plains where men inhabit. His reason is dispersed and shadowy, more thin and subtle like the air, vast, titanic, inhuman nature has got him at disadvantage, caught him alone, and pilfers him of some of his divine faculty. She does not smile on him as down in the plains. She seems to say sternly, why came ye here before your time? This ground is not prepared for you. Is it not enough that I smile in the valleys? I have never made this soil for thy feet, this air for thy breathing, these rocks to be thy neighbors. I cannot pity nor fondle thee here, but forever relentlessly drive thee hence to where I am kind. Why seek me where I have not called thee, and then complain because you find me but a stepmother? Shouldst thou freeze or starve or shudder thy life away, here is no shrine nor altar nor any access to my ear. Now, if that isn't terrifying. That is terrifying. <laughs> it's, uh, and it, it speaks to ego. That, mm. that we want to go to places where basically there's no reason for us to go at all. Right. Uh, and what, why do we do it? We do it for fame. We do it for self-aggrandizement. Yeah. We do it for publicity. We do it for all these, for mammon. And, yeah. and, and, and you, you wonder why we, if, that, if that's just a part of the human condition and it's, it's never going to be right. uh, under control. And that's why we fight wars. And that's why we do these things that hurt yeah. people and destroy nature indiscriminately. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it forces you to face the questions, at least. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if anyone who goes out there isn't somehow confronted with those questions, just simply by the majesty of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the spirit you were talking about, the spirit of Maine that you were talking about. Right. The, the, the kind of iconic value that we have here. Right, right. And the icons are familiar. Yeah. And they're real creatures and real places. Yeah. But they take on this much more powerful, you know, what numinous kind of quality. You had also some other uh, surprises you told me that you had. Oh, yeah, I've got a little piece. I've got another little piece. This is backtracking a little bit, um, which I just couldn't resist. You, you, you talk about being masters of nature, you know, or right. what is our role vis-a-vis -vis nature. Right. And uh, it made me think of this uh, piece by Steinbeck in Grapes of Wrath, where he talks about the tractor. And I think I'm going to read a little bit of that if, there, please, if we have time. Yeah. Please. The tractors. See, he's talking about, of course, the Dust Bowl 
and how the tractors are putting people out of work. The tractors had lights shining. There is no day and night for a tractor. And the disks turn the earth in the darkness and they glitter in the daylight. And when a horse stops work and goes into a barn, there's a life and a vitality left. There's a breathing and a warmth and the feet shift on the straw and the jaws champ on the hay and the ears and the eyes are alive. There is a warmth of life in the barn and the heat and smell of life. But when the motor of a tractor stops, it's as dead as the ore it came from. But the machine man driving a dead tractor on land he does not know and love understands only chemistry, and he is contemptuous of the land and of himself. When the corrugated iron doors are shut, he goes home, and his home is not the land. I've always he's not a main writer, but no, but but it's the same thing. I always, when I think about that, the the, the poem Ozymandias look on right. works he mighty in despair. Right. I always think, well, what are what are what are the archaeologists going to find when they look at our civilization? And they they they'll find the skyscraper, but that's just a, an elongated temple. Right. They've seen those before. Well, what they never will have seen will be all the poisoned land and the abandoned tools of industrial agriculture, yeah. the giant combines yeah. that have been left to rest in the fields of Kansas, right. and for which there was suddenly no more use because the land was dead. Yeah. The land was exhausted. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I, um, well, we, we don't want to, this is not a program about the downer. This is a this is an uplifting. Well, right. Uplifting program. Right. Um, right. I know. And my feeling of good nature writing and also of the reality of, of of going out in Maine is that it is hopeful. And that's because what we see is this power of regeneration. We see that I mean, that's why spring is such an incredible experience, you know, for for us inside and out, uh, you know, and for the whole you know face of nature. Uh, because there is this regenerative power, and this this goes every, every myth you can think of, in some way rehearses this, replays this this myth about how life has has power to heal and to come back, you know, and uh, um, you know think about nature as therapy. I was in the hospital for quite a while in uh, February, and I. <laughs> I was in the first several weeks. I was in a room with no windows. You know, all I could see through, I could see a hallway, but no, there were no windows to the outdoors. And I finally ended up for rehab in a room that had a window. And and I I didn't get out of bed much, but I could see this little section of the real world. There was a tree covered with snow and a little bank, and that's what I saw every day. But but just I would just sit and stare out through that little peace. Uh, there was a, a great huge building also right there, but I could see that one that was, it probably was landscaped, but still it, nature had the upper hand. Right. And that's what, and, and that made a huge difference uh, uh, to me. And when I finally got home, you could see the field out behind my house. Whew, boy, that's when the healing started. Right. 
That's when the humans. That building was immutable, but that every day that piece of nature changed. Changed a little bit because yeah. it was alive. Yeah. Just yeah. like uh, Steinbeck saying about the the horse and the. Well, and mirror, mirroring your own human. Right. Your own recovery. Right. You know, you're surrounded by the by the structures of healing, but in fact, the right. nature was the thing that was actually. And, doing and you know, they've done study after study after study mm -hmm. that shows that if you have a window in your hospital room. You're going to get better faster mm -hmm. than somebody who doesn't, mm -hmm. you know. Or even believe it or not, if you have a picture of a natural scene on the wall as opposed to nothing, and they've done the they've done the numbers on this. Right. It's true. Right. It's actually true. Right. You know? So it's like the seascapes on the ceiling of my dentist's office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then you know you've got this recent craze of forest bathing. Oh, you know where everybody goes out. We've we've known this for a long time, but but it's good news that another generation, you know, is being drawn out. Mm -hmm. And you look at the the pandemic and uh, the response to that. Well, one is that Maine real estate is getting very scarce, and the prices are going up because people want to get closer to this healing power. But also, uh, you can't buy uh, camping gear because people are buying it as fast as they can make it. And, and they're going out and they're camping, you know, mm -hmm. which is a very positive sign. Mm -hmm. Because once you've been out there, it's much harder to sit still for the destruction of nature. Mm -hmm. okay. What else do you have to share for us with the, the almanac piece? Well, we're, we're, we're pretty close to there. Yeah. Um, I think um, just a word or two about, you know, where this is all headed. I, I actually just put out a, <laughs> a book about that. Uh, Some Glad Morning is is trying to respond to the uh, secular apocalypticism of our culture and society. I mean, you know, zombie movies, On the Road, Mad Max, you know, all of these things. These are echoes of our fears of the future. You know, what what is going to happen mm -hmm. if we keep going down this road? But here again, I mean, being out in, in a place where nature has the upper hand, where nature is being allowed to do what she does is fundamentally optimistic. And it generates, will, can generate the solutions we need for the future. So. Rob, we have just a short time left for this enjoyable conversation. What finally will you share with us from your Awanajo almanac? Now, I do have a little almanac for the point at first. This is from Sarah Orne Jewett. We were standing where there were was a fine view of the harbor and its long stretches of shore, all covered by the great arm of the pointed firs. Darkly cloaked and standing as if they waited to embark. As we looked far seaward among the outer islands, the trees seemed to march seaward still, going steadily over the heights and down to the water's edge. The Great Maine Woods is subboreal forest, consisting largely of evergreens, which have distinct advantages over deciduous trees in a cold northern climate. Their needles are tough with little surface area, which protects them from freezing. Also, conifers stand green all year, which allows them to make food whenever the sun shines, regardless of how meager the sunlight and their branches shed snow easily without breaking, as most of us have noticed from time to time, walking 
in the woods with a sudden load of snow down our backs falling off of a fir tree. And the favorite of many is balsam fir because of its deep green color, its silky needles, and its captivating aroma. Pointed firs from Maine decorate millions of homes during the holidays. To the mythic power of these trees, we add the call of the loon, the sight of a moose, the mass of the mountains, the feel of our coastal islands, the sound of a whale blowing, and we have the sacred nature of Maine, which draws so many to its bosom year-round to be nurtured and healed in our souls. That is the power of the pointed firs. But don't take it from me. Go out and see for yourself. Go out and see for yourself. Thank you, Rob McCall, for a wonderful interview. Thank you, uh, Peter. Joy uh, and uh, pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal. You've been listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 Blue Hill. Conversations from the Pointed Furs is Elite Island Books audio project, produced by Tricia Badger, with theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Find archived public affairs shows at weru.org and find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.